The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Isaiah 1-3 Hi, this is Pastor Jason from Christian Life Church in Waverly, New York. Welcome to Master's Crib, a weekly podcast where we interview pastors and leaders about the biblical teaching of authority. This program is designed to go alongside a personal Bible study aimed towards spiritual growth, biblical understanding, and a Christian worldview. Thanks for tuning in. Today on episode 17, we have Pastor Tim Barton of Wall Builders. Tim is the president of Wall Builders, a national pro-family organization that presents America's forgotten history and heroes with an emphasis on our religious, moral, and constitutional heritage. Tim's also an ordained minister, and he's worked in a variety of church staff positions, including as a youth minister, worship leader, and assistant pastor. Tim, welcome to Master's Crib. Well, thanks so much. It's good to be with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be linked up with you again after the, the conference that we had you know, this, uh, this past winter. That was really a, an awesome time, so uh, people are going to be excited to hear your voice again, hear your thoughts on this. Well, it's funny that that was only a couple of months ago, because with all this coronavirus stuff, it feels like it could have been years ago. <laughs> time has just kind of stood still for a while. It's crazy. <laughs> So that's, that's really funny that you say that because some of the people I've spoken to about about this and what we did this year um, have felt like it was forever ago and really, I mean, five months ago. So it's crazy the way this all goes. So uh, I, a couple questions just about uh, about what's been happening with you. So kind of like a precursor. When did you get started in all this? I mean, I know you were you were kind of born into it with, with what your father was doing, but when did you kind of uh, take the reins and start hopping in on this stuff? Well, I appreciate you asking that question because certainly I grew up in it and all around it. Um, but, you know, growing up, I, I felt like I was living in my dad's shadow and I wanted to be independent, right? I wanted to be, I wanted to make blaze my own trail and make my own name. And so um, when I ended up going to college, I was going to be a business major, which I ended up getting a degree in business management. And I was pursuing athletics at the time. And so I thought, you know, something in the athletic realm or in the business realm is where my future would hold. And that was really what I pursued. Um, when I finished college, I had several opportunities uh, in the business arena, the business world. Uh, I, uh, most of my friends were going that direction. And I just kind of felt like, you know, I want to take a year and be a little more chilled and settled. My hometown church needed a youth pastor. Um, our youth minister had left recently. And so they asked if I'd come back. I said, you know, I can for like a year because then I'm going to go enter the business world and, and, you know, go make a lot of money because that seems like a great thing to do at the time. <laughs> and uh, that there was a Christian school uh, back home. And when they heard I was coming back, they said, hey, you know, we know you played sports in college. Um, would you be willing to come coach at our school? You can teach some of these classes. I ended up teaching the junior, uh, well, really mostly high school level um, Bible classes. I taught the senior speech, government economics. I coached a couple different sports and I told them, I'm just going to do this, you know, for a little bit until I move on. And, and like nine years later, right. I was still on staff at a church. I was doing all these different kinds of things. I'd still working with kids at the school, still coaching. And one summer taking uh, my youth group to a, a, a church camp uh, the guy who was leading church camp said, Tim, could you do something to talk about some of the Christian heritage of our nation? And I told him, man, I've never really done any talks on this, but I've 
heard thousands growing up, you know, <laughs> of my dad doing these talks. I said, I'd, I'd be happy to. And so I asked my dad, you know, hey, what, what should I talk about? He gave me some thoughts and advice. And I ended up giving this talk at the summer camp. And there were lots of other churches and, and other ministers there. And they heard it and went, Tim, that was amazing. Would you come share at our church? And awesome. so I started getting invited to go speak at churches that summer. And I told my dad, I, I really love, you know, speaking to these churches and doing this. And he said, well, you know, would you ever want to come back and, and work? And you can do that full time. And for the first time in my life, it didn't seem like a terrible idea. So right, I knew it was God that, hey, that seems like a cool idea because I never wanted to go that direction. And ultimately, looking back now, I see how God just gave me so many unique opportunities where I got to spend so much time in the Word, discipling, mentoring people. Uh, he really kind of allowed my heart to be blessed by being around sports and, and kind of filled that itch for years. Um, but about 10 years ago, I came in and started working with my dad and it was very unique. Cause it's kind of like if you grow up in a Christian home, you're always around Christianity, mm. but you have to take ownership for yourself. And that's kind of how it was for me for American history. I'd always been around it. I'd heard a lot of stories. I'd never really studied in depth for myself. And so when I came in 10 years ago, I just started pouring into original documents and reading uh, proclamations and journals and books. And it, it has blown me away wow. things that I had heard my dad say, but I just didn't have the same level of revelation as I did when I started studying for myself. So that was 10 years ago. And it's just, I, I have a passion lit in me to promote truth, to present biblical truth, mm. um, to show historically when, when we can point out people that you know, when we followed biblical principles, things worked really well. And we had leaders who didn't support biblical principles, who, who were supporting ungodly or even evil policies. Look how destructive it was for the nation. But then I can point to, but every time that there was an atrocity or an evil in the nation, I can point to the Christian leaders that God raised up and God used, again, biblical principles to help restore America to the position of uniqueness and blessing and freedom and liberty and stability and prosperity so it's been a really fun learning journey for me over the last now more than 10 years. Wow, that is so awesome. So now when you finish up, I mean, you came up here and I'm assuming, that, I mean, I know you went to, a, to your church to preach and then you had probably another, another talk lined up after that. I mean, the end of the day, you get done with all this, mm. you know, you're done with all the speeches, you're done, you've turned off your PowerPoint, finally let that thing cool down. What are you hoping and praying was accomplished through all this? My, my heart is discipleship and apologetic. Okay. Um, you know, when, when we read in Scripture that we need to be ready to give a hope for the reason that is in us, at the end of the day, my, my goal is not America. My goal is the hearts and minds of people. And America is unique because God has used America to do to do more good in the world in the last couple hundred years, right, than, than any nation before. More money to, to provide missionaries, more money to provide Bibles, more money to provide humanitarian aid, effort, and relief. Um, you know, in America, you have more opportunity, more freedom, more stability. There's nowhere else you can raise a family where your kids have more opportunity to do and be and become all that God has for them. Mm. At the end of the day, my heart is not just America. My heart is people getting a hold of what God has for them and specifically standing on truth. Mm. Um, where in Scripture we read that, that God says my people die for lack of knowledge. So often we are, we are misled by things that have been repeated enough that we assume they are true 
even though they're not rooted in biblical truth or in historic fact. And so at the end of the day, my hope and heart is, is that people will pursue truth, number one, but then, kind of like what God told Joshua when he was leading the Israelites into the promised land, he said, if people will, will think about my word, if they will study and meditate on it, and then if they'll start to do it, they will enjoy the benefits, the blessings, and prosperity that comes from doing things my way. Wow. At the end of the day, my heart and hope is that as people look in their own lives, they look at their families, they look at their marriages, they look even at America, that we would pursue what is true, and that's ultimately found in God's word, and as we begin to study and apply that, that we then would enjoy the benefits in our families, in our marriages, uh, with our kids, with our businesses, and even with our nation. But it's not just because I want America to continue to be special or unique or blessed. It's because I want the blessings of God to be able to flow from us to others. Mm. And America right now is the best dispenser of some of those blessings of any nation in the world, which is why we really love being in America. But it's but my heart is that people will pursue truth and that they will, will live in those principles that God lays out in Scripture. Mm. Well, that is, that is awesome. So on that note, let's you and I spend a couple minutes tearing into God's Word together. Tonight we are uh, talking about the authority to resist. And uh, this is uh, kind of a topic that we're taking from a different approach than we have been with with other guests. Uh, So I'm going to read from Esther chapter 4, verses 9 through 17, and it says this, And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's providences know that if any man or woman goes to the king, Inside the inner court, without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king for these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So what here is Esther's concern in disregarding the king's authority? So I love that passage and several things about it. You know, as, as we dig into this, there's there's several things that stand out to me, but starting with, with Esther's concern is she recognizes that if she does something that's not authorized, there will be consequences for the action. Mm. And, and, and it's possible there can be mercy, right, that maybe she won't receive the, the full punishment. But what's, what's remarkable to me about Esther is that she recognized the necessity of standing up, even if it was going to cost her something. It very much is similar to the story of Daniel. Right where the, the king says that issues a decree, you can only pray in my name, and Daniel knows the consequences. He knows if I pray, I'm I'm going to be killed. 
And he says, but doing the right thing is worth whatever consequences I'm going to suffer. And, and Esther was so convinced that standing up, and this wasn't just standing up on behalf of her, because she, she would have been fine because nobody knew she was a Jew, but standing up on behalf of other people that were being oppressed, that uh, other people, right? I mean, in, in some of these situations, we, we've talked about some of these shutdowns and, and how it's, it's hurt people and, and how churches have been devastated. And, and you can meet if you're going to riot or protest or loot, but you can't meet if you're religious. Uh, at some point, somebody's got to stand up and say, okay, wait a second, this is wrong. Mm. And, and almost, almost dare the consequences knowing that we ultimately trust in God. And, and it's, it's not that there might not be consequences. You look at, the, at all of Jesus' disciples, right? I mean, pretty much without exception, they all died martyrs' death. There was consequences for them standing up for truth. Mm. But we can't be intimidated of consequences at the sake of not standing up for what's right, and that's certainly what you see here with Esther. Mm. So is, is there something specific that you see in what Mordecai said to her via the, the uh, messenger um, that made her decide that she wanted to, uh, to go against the rule of the king? Like, what is the specific thing that Mordecai says here that, that makes her up her mind, I guess? Mm. Well, I, I, I think you could read this a couple ways. And so, right, not to say that as we're interpreting this, I'm not going to say that this is the only interpretation, okay. but certainly I think one of the things you can draw from this is that when, when Mordecai says, look, God is going to provide an answer, mm. right? I mean, th this is going to happen. It's just now you're choosing, are you willing to be part of the answer or are you going to sit back and have God use somebody else? Mm. And, and I think this is really a question so often for us in our life is, you know, we're, we're praying, and, and even in the midst of this, I love that she says that, hey, everybody, we need to start praying right now, but the prayer was to empower her activation of prayer, her activation of faith to go act. So we pray, right, so that we can, we're asking and beseeching God to move on our behalf, but we're praying so that we can then go act and be empowered to go act. So, so prayer is a vital part of this whole process. But I love Mordecai's challenge when he, he points out that, look, God's going to bring an answer. God, this is going to happen. God is going to resolve this problem one way or the other. You can choose to be on God's side or not. And who knows, but that God lets you be in this very position for this very moment that God would use you to be the solution. And I think a lot of times we look and we want God to use us to be the solution. I, I, I think most Christians would being willing and readily accepting God. Yes, use me, right? Let me be part of the solution. Uh, I, I, I want to be one of the ones to make a difference. Most people want to be used. They want to make a difference. But we don't often recognize the courage it's going to take mm. to stand up and say, okay, if I'm going to be used, in order for me to be used, I have to recognize that if the king doesn't extend that scepter to me, that... I'm going to die, and then I was the one God was going to use, mm. right? I mean, there is a risk when we step out. We want God to use us, but we don't know how God's going to use us. We don't know what God's plan is, because God's ways aren't our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts, and we make our plans. He directs our steps, so we trust in his guidance, but it doesn't always go the way we think or want. But the willingness and boldness to step out and say something needs to be done, and God's going to use somebody, I'm going to stand up, 
because I might be this, you know, this vessel that God chooses to use for a significant purpose. And I think Mordecai's challenge was that God's going to do something. Mm-hmm. Now you just have to choose what side of the aisle are you going to be on? Are you going to be one who steps up and says, God, use me. Here I am. I'm going forward. Or are you going to sit back and let God use somebody else? And just remember, the very reason you might be where you are is because God put you there on purpose for a reason for this very moment. Wow. So one of the things that we hear Christians talking a lot about, especially with what's going on right now, is uh, those two words, civil disobedience. And uh, there are people that are saying, hey, we need to do this, or people that are saying, hey, we, you know, we need to follow Romans 13, make sure we're listening to the authorities. So in light of, of that um, line of thinking, what's happening right now, the fact that this act leads to the salvation of the Jews, is this an example of civil disobedience, or are we missing something? That's a really good question. One of the things that it's interesting for for me studying history, I've seen several times where founding fathers talked about Romans 13. And Romans 13, just for everybody to be on the same page, talks about that um, we need to, to subject ourselves or submit to all governing authorities um, because the governing authorities represent God. This is a, a very interesting thought when you consider, like the second part of that verse, it says that civil government represents God. And one of the things that pastors in the founding era talked about and the reason that when some people say that the founding fathers committed an act of rebellion, it wasn't godly, and therefore the revolution wasn't built on godliness, it was built on rebellion, and right, the Bible says rebellion is in a witchcraft, so it's ungodly, it's unbiblical, etc. The reason that doesn't really hold up is that it was their pastors who pointed out that when government ceases to be godly, they cease to be God's representatives. It's, it's almost similar to in Ephesians 6, 1, it says, Children, obey your parents in me, Lord, for this is right. It doesn't say children obey your parents no matter what they say, right? If my parents said, hey, Tim, go murder your brother, mm. well, wait a second, right? That's, that contradicts what God says. I obey my parents in the Lord. When my parents submit to God's authority, then I have to obey what they say because it comes under God's authority. When my parents step out of God's authority and tell me to be ungodly, this is kind of like what, what Peter and John said to, right, that, that the Sanhedrin to oh, yeah. um, the different Pharisees when they were told, hey, stop preaching in Jesus' name. They said, we, we're supposed to obey God, not just men. This is the perspective of civil disobedience is that certainly we need to submit to, to governing authorities. I'm not at all advocating for anarchy, for, for unrest and rebellion. Absolutely not. But anytime civil government says that we need to do something that the Bible does not support in that moment right there, on that specific law and command, that's where you say, I can't do that. I, nope, I'm, I'm not going to do it, because that would be wrong for me to do this. For Esther, that's what Mordecai challenged her with. Mm-hmm. Esther, it would be wrong for you to not stand up while people are going to die when you could stand up and say something. This is where the, the notion of civil disobedience for the sake of being rebellious or, or Almost like in, in the book of Judges, where there's a couple places at, at the end of the book of Judges where it says that the people were, were unrestrained and every man did what was right in their own eyes. Mm. If you are throwing off civil government for the, the point of anarchy, or in this case, um, right, kind of your own individual interpretation, your, your selfish desires and gains, that I want to do what I want to do and nobody's going to tell me what to do. Well, that's the wrong heart and that's the wrong motive. 
But mm. civil disobedience in an effort to be godly, that would be totally different. Because I don't know any pastor who would look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and say, oh, those guys were wrong. They should have submitted to civil authority. <laughs> well, of course not. Right? When, when the, their leader says, hey, right, anytime you hear music play, you're going to bow down to this giant gold image. And they said, yeah, we only bow the knee to God. <laughs> right? we, we're not doing that. Civil disobedience for the sake of submitting to a higher authority is always good. Mm. Anytime civil government says that we need to do something that is not biblically supported, then the most godly thing you can do is oppose that civil command. And, and this is what, again, early pastors in, in 1700s in America, even late 1600s, they were talking about this, that when government ceases to be godly, they cease to be God's representatives, because that's what Paul says in Romans 13, that you need to submit to governing authorities for they are representatives of God. Now, I understand we can have different takes on that because some of the leaders that Paul was talking about, they weren't godly and they beheaded Christians and they did this. That's true. But notice the reason that so many of the Christians were persecuted and killed is because they didn't stop talking about Jesus even when they were told to, which means they practiced civil disobedience and they suffered the consequences of it. One of the things that has been so special about America is that in America, our religious rights, our, our rights of conscience have always been politically protected, which means we don't have to suffer consequences for submitting to what we believe is, is God's standard in our life. Mm. But as we lose those political protections, now we are at a place where it's becoming more more of a possibility and more likely that we will suffer consequences for standing up for our faith because we're losing those political protections and largely because Christians haven't really stayed involved and helped elect people who want to protect those religious beliefs or that religious liberty in this case. Um, but, but certainly the notion of Romans 13, we should submit to government authority. And when we say that you should practice civil disobedience, it's only on the specific ordinance, command, or law that calls you to be ungodly, right? If you have a business and the government says, hey, you need to provide abortions for all the people that work for you, and you say, ooh, but I believe abortion is morally wrong and sinful, I'm not going to do it. Well, for you to oppose abortion as a business, that's a very godly thing for you to do, even though it is civil disobedience. And we have to just help bring clarity to the line that we submit to God first. And whenever, if, if God's the hierarchy at the very top, if government is under God, we submit to everything government says. But when government has a command that is ungodly, I submit to God over men, which is what Peter and John said in Acts chapter 4. Mm. So on that note, I'm just going to walk this into contemporary implications so we could t just discuss that for a little bit. So we have all of the Jews in captivity and the plan is for all of the Jews to be killed. That's, that's the plan that's here. So if Esther does not step up to the plate and do what she's supposed to do or, or, or do what we know she should do, then Mordecai says, you know, deliverance will rise up from another place. Mordecai is actually kind of leaning in hard. He is definitely leaning in hard on the promise of God that the Messiah would come from their line. If they perish there, Messiah does not come. So he knew this was going to happen. So really, throughout this 
entire journey through the book of Esther, we see God's sovereignty, and we both know, as everyone else does that's listening, um, you know, God's name isn't mentioned in the book of Esther. But if this should fail, we know that God is going to be, bring deliverance in this particular time for the Jews from another place, because otherwise, Messiah doesn't come. So thinking of all that, that this act of civil disobedience on the part of Esther that she chose to go and take part in brought the deliverance of the Jews in this one particular instance, can you just talk for a couple minutes about maybe a historical example or two of uh, resisting the civil authority and obeying the higher authority throughout our nation's history? Yeah, it's something that there are plenty, there's a plethora of examples, if you will. Um, Going back to, to the very beginning, there's, you have pastors, for example, John Wise, who was a pastor in Massachusetts, in the late 1600s, all the way through the early 1700s. And, and he was someone who was opposing British, uh, and really, he called it kind of tyranny and oppression. Um, we would look back and we would say, that doesn't seem as tyrannical and as oppressive as some of the things that we see today. <laughs> but for them, anything that was a, a restraint that they had not approved from elected officials Um, that was being dictated to them, he said, this is not godly. Well, John Wise was a leader who stood up against it, and he called out um, at the time, I think it was Lord Dunmore, I think is the guy who was over, um, Lord Baltimore came later, I believe, but he called out the leaders who were there, and actually, you know what, I might be, Baltimore and Dunmore might be the ones further on. Okay, let me me just (laughs) pause and say, I'm I'm not at my computer, I'd look this up, Um, I'd, I'd give the specific name, but... Uh, in, in the late 1600s, there was a, a British-appointed governor, and John Wise opposed this British-appointed governor, saying, look, what you're saying is not right. You're not reflecting the, the people, and he opposed them. Well, he was thrown in jail, and when he was thrown in jail, the judge actually refused to have him come to a trial. So they just held him without bail for, for in essence, weeks on end, and eventually there was kind of a revolt in the town, and they get him out. Um, the governor is recalled. Lots of things are happening in this process, and, and he gets out, and he's upheld as a hero, which, by the way, uh, he, he had a series of sermons that he preached that became a book of sermons. In this book of sermons, he's the guy who said that um, arguing all men were created equal and that God has endowed every man equal and every man is equal to every man and just kind of goes on. But this notion from the declaration that all men are created equal, they're endowed by their creator with certain noble rights. Mm-hmm. John Wise is the first one who's arguing that. Um, John Wise is the one who had a sermon where he taught on the notion that taxation without representation is tyranny. And he just goes through these things. These were sermons he preached. Those sermons went into a book of his sermons. He had one in 1710 and one in 1717. But jump all the way forward to 1772, you have the Sons of Liberty who reprint his book of sermons in Massachusetts, and they reprinted it because they said, we need to help the people of Massachusetts understand what the Bible says about these issues. And it was John Wise's sermons, reprinted by the Sons of Liberty, distributed all over the place, uh, went through two volumes because the first volume that they printed, they had sold and given them all away, so they had to have a second volume they could sell and give more. When the Declaration was written, there is verbatim language and ideas in the Declaration of Independence that came directly from John Wise's sermon. The reason we point all that out, John Wise was the leader of a congregation 
his town of Ipswich, Massachusetts, is known as the birthplace of liberty mm-hmm. because the ideas that led to independence started there, and it started from a pastor standing up against what he believed to be ungodliness in British leaders saying, we shouldn't put up with this. And he did endure consequences where he was thrown in prison. He was kept there. Uh, I mean, they very much kind of abandoned his, what were believed to be God-given rights, but ultimately with the British Bill of Rights, they suspended that for him. Um, I mean, violated so many laws in what they did because they wanted to make, make his his case kind of a message to everybody else. You don't oppose the crown. You don't oppose the governor, etc. He endured a lot and still remained a very strong voice in what happened. And this is one of the things that in, in, in American history, I can point to dozens of pastors mm. who were the ones leading their area, leading their congregation in, in not only thought sometimes in actually physical marches, Sometimes, right, it was Jonas Clark's church that was at Lexington Green. When the shot heard around the world happened, and there were 73 men there in Lexington, well, they were from, from Jonas Clark's church. Actually, his deacon was their military officer in charge of that excursion. It was literally pastors who were leading their people to stand up in opposition. And part of the opposition they were, were trying to stop from the British at the time is the British were going door-to-door. They were confiscating supplies, which they classified as military supplies, but it included food. It included blankets and clothes, and, and then there were guns, and there was gunpowder, and they said, we're not letting you come and steal from us. Stealing is wrong. We're not going to let you do it. It was pastors leading their people, not just in thought, but oftentimes in action, to oppose what they viewed as ungodly action and behavior from a government. And this is where, again, we would point back to and say, Romans 13, you should submit to governing authority. But when governing authority ceases to be godly in that area, they cease to represent God. And then biblical, biblical positions should be upheld. If that means rejecting in this situation the, what the government says, well, sometimes we've got to do that. If government said, you know what, abortion is legal, every Christian ought to be standing up and saying, nope, it shouldn't be, and we oppose it. Mm. That's not civil disobedience in a sense of anarchy. That is trying to bring moral clarity to a, an institution that is morally confused. Mm. Wow, that is amazing. So we have these pastors and leaders throughout American history that had authority right. So um, we are standing here upon the foundation um, that was built by these guys that they, they knew where we needed su- to submit and where we should not submit. So today, in 2020, do you think that that's a problem that we have going on where uh, we as Christians don't really know who to submit to? And um, just to add to that question a little bit, uh, if it is a problem, how do you think we should go about addressing it? Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges in culture today is that, that there's not moral clarity in culture at all, and, and that includes inside of Christianity, where right now there are so many Christians who are divided on what should be very basic issues. We shouldn't be divided on the issue of a right to life and abortion. That, that, that should be a no-brainer issue because that, that's not a confusing issue when you read the Bible. So why would we be confused about an issue that's not confusing in the Bible? When you look at, at, at human sexuality, that's not confusing in the Bible, right? I mean, there's male and female, and, and a husband and wife are joined together, and the marriage bed between a husband and wife is undefiled. I mean, you, just, you can go through verse after verse after verse, 
And yet, for some reason in culture, many Christians are confused about what what a sexual union and what sexual purity should be and what a marriage or relationship or family should look like. We're confused about too many issues that are not confusing in the Bible, and what it reflects is that most Christians don't know the Bible or they don't believe the Bible. And, and this is another problem is that even when you look inside of Christianity right now, the majority of Christians do not believe the Bible is accurate and the inspired Word of God. And, and I would say the first step to helping culture, we, we, can never, we can never find moral clarity in culture if there's not moral clarity in the church. Mm-hmm. And the reason there's not moral clarity in the church is because right now the church doesn't know what's true, and because it doesn't know what's true, this is very much where it's a, a subjective system of morality where every church is kind of defining their own thoughts for themselves. And, and this is not what, what the Bible teaches. It's not what God taught. It's not what Jesus taught the disciples. This, there, sh- there should not be confusion in many of these issues. And so upholding godliness is something that we all should strive for. And to help reach a culture, the first thing I would say is we have to make sure that, that we are, are examining ourselves. And, and, and if, we, if, if we aren't spending time in God's Word, well, then I'm not surprised that there's moral confusion and there's not moral clarity in culture because I'm not spending time making sure I have moral clarity. Mm. The very first thing we ought to do is make sure that we're spending time in God's Word and then make sure that we're with our family spending time in God's Word. One of the things that, that, that I think so often we look at, at national problems and we look for national solutions, mm. not recognizing that's not generally how God works. God, God doesn't often bring a national solution. More times than not, Right, what Jesus taught was discipleship. Go make disciples of every nation. Disciples was about one person pouring into one person. Mm. And then you duplicate. You make a disciple. We so often look and say, well, what, what federal law can we pass? What, what executive order could a president give? That's not really the way God usually works. Wow. What God calls us to do is God calls us to reach the people around us. And, and if we just start with our family, start with our friends, start with where we live and where we work, if, if every Christian said, you know what, I'm going to reach one person this next year, and I'm going to just pour my life into them. I'm going to love on them, encourage them, disciple them. I'm going to teach them the Word of God. I'm going to show them what the Bible says. If we did that for one year, pouring into one person, and then the next year said, I'm going to pour into somebody else. And if the person we poured into that first year, we tell them, now you go pour into somebody else. What we are doing is we are duplicating, and all of a sudden, the the... 25% of, of Bible-believing Christians in America becomes 50%, becomes 100%. And, and it has this incredible, incredible growth expansion rate, right? exponential rate of growth and expansion, and, and it will be much more effective than any executive order, than any law that could be passed. What we ultimately need is a resurgence of discipleship and of individual responsibility saying, I'm not looking at the government to solve this problem. I'm not looking at the president. I'm not looking at the governor. I'm not, no, I am going to take it upon myself to go minister, to pour into people, to love on people, to disciple people. And, and, and our name for our organization is Wall Builders. And, and I think it's very strategic for this time and place because that comes from the Bible book of Nehemiah, where Nehemiah felt God called him to go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that had been torn down. And when Nehemiah gets there, first of all, people said, this is an impossible project. You're never going to rebuild the walls. Nehemiah said, I want everybody who will come join me inside the city. And we're just going to start working together. And, and right, there was a lot of threats and attacks that the city might come under attack, and it's not going to 
it's not going to happen peaceably. So Nehemiah says, okay, everybody, you're going to have a sword on your side. You're going to have a sword on one hand, and you're going to be building with the other hand. So we're, we're ready to defend ourselves. We have to, but we're going to build this thing. As he called people back together, one of the things you'll see is that there was a father and his daughters. There, there was an apothecary. There were the priests. And, and, and not, it wasn't all builders coming in. It was a very diverse group. And when they get in, he says, everybody do what you can. He told the priest, y'all can even just rebuild behind your house. You don't even have to go anywhere. Just, just right where you live, just build in your backyard. In 52 days, they finished the project that, be, that most people believed was impossible. And what we see is that so often we look at something and see it as overwhelming. But if everybody just rolls up their sleeves and gets involved, right, where I am in Texas, I don't need to come solve the problems in New York City. I don't need to go to Los Angeles to solve their problems. I just need to solve the problems from where I live. But if every Christian says, I'm just going to take care of my backyard, if every church said, I'm going to take care of my community, all of a sudden, every single backyard, every single community is being taken care of. And in 52 days, this nation can be restored with some biblical morality. Instead of looking for a national answer, more times than not, we just need to focus on our very backyard. And sometimes that starts with our family. That starts with our friends, our loved ones, who we work with. What difference can I make where I am? And let God use those ripples and let those ripples go throughout the nation and as, as everybody does what they can do, all of a sudden, for Nehemiah, this impossible project gets completed, and Jerusalem, once again, is restored to a place of honor. Wow. Tim, that is amazing. It is practical advice, and I pray that's a real encouragement to all of our listeners. And I just thank you so much. I really appreciate this conversation, appreciate your insight. And uh, if you would, just one more time, just let the listeners know how they can find out more about you or more about wall builders. Absolutely. Our website is wallbuilders.com. We also have a YouTube channel. We're on Facebook and on Instagram, and uh, you can find so much stuff from us. We have thousands of articles on our website. Uh, we've done, it seems like, thousands of, of videos on our social media accounts talking about specific people and moments or documents from history, giving some application to, to culture today, what we can do. Uh, so there's a wealth of information that is out there. Um, and, and we have all kinds of resources. We have MP3s, MP4s, DVDs, CDs, books. Um, there's plenty of stuff out there for people that want to learn more. But wallbuilders.com is probably the best place to find out more. Awesome. Well, Tim, I'm going to be praying for you, for wall builders, for your family. And I just thank you again so much for your time. Absolutely my pleasure. 